folks, this is The Well with Shan, and I am today in Durham, North Carolina, with my good friend, Evan Marbury. Um, Evan is a pastor and a counselor, and has just a rich wealth of experience with relatability to um, lots of topics that I want to share with you. He's a special person in our family life. Um, because about eight years ago, he showed up as an RD on a campus that was right down from my office, and we became fast friends, and Katrina, his wife, came into the picture, and we started having birthday parties, dance parties, food parties, lots of fun times. One of my favorite memories is when we were going to a goodbye party for you and your family, and uh, all five at the time, had a, a bonus son in the picture at that time, hopped in the car readily. Didn't It was probably the only event I did not have to drag them to the car <laughs> because they all wanted to be part of telling you goodbye. And I always felt like that was a significant um, indication of your power in their life, their love for you, um, because they felt loved by you. So, Evan, uh, welcome, and just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and introduce the things I've left out. Sure. Well, <clears throat> did a good job, and um, yeah, Shan is uh, such a dear friend, a dear sister, and um, I'm husband to Katrina, father to Joel and Isaiah, and uh, we've been in Durham, North Carolina for about three years uh, before that was in Chattanooga, and that's where I got to cross paths with Shannon and her family. And what has been such a, a blessing is I will, I will always treasure that when we first moved to Chattanooga, uh, Shan was one of the first people that we got to know and was also one of the first people to invite us over to her house for, for food and games. And, and that kind of set the tone of our relationship that um, we just we wanted to know and be known by each other and our families. And Shan has been such uh, a gift, uh, not just in the high moments where we've had dance parties uh, going into the wee hours of the we night. We like to dance. We do. <laughs> we like to dance and to sing. Um, but even in the, in the harder moments um, where I just really felt disoriented by uh, brokenness of this world and our own lives. Shan was a faithful presence. And so when the opportunity to to help with this podcast came up, it was not even a consideration for me. I was so delighted to to help in any way that I can. And so glad to have this conversation and uh, sorry in advance because we could go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> you just direction. never know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Lord willing, it'll be good. Yeah, I know it will. You have um, you're very thoughtful. You have a very rich, uh, well, you're a reader and you, you have all this, um, knowledge, but you, you have the heart of a counselor. And so Evan, today we're going to actually be digging into the topic of shame mm -hmm. and, um, you know, for you Enneagram lovers, I, I have typed our brother Evan here. You're not supposed to do that, but I think we're both in the heart triad and the shadow work of anybody in the heart triad is the lovely work of shame. 
and that's what we're going to be talking about, and I think we're both pretty familiar with it. Um, mm-hmm. But give us just a working definition, um, Evan, of shame, because you often hear um, this definition that guilt is feeling wrong or convicted about something you do. Shame is um, the feeling of unworthiness that I am, not what I've done, but I am dirty, unworthy. So unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, I definitely have used that definition before of uh, guilt is I've done something wrong, shame is I am something wrong. And I do resonate with that. I, I think um, we, uh, it's it's really important to acknowledge, I think the, the Bible lays out that we all on some level wrestle with that. I mm. think the notion of shame can be drawn all the way back uh, to, to Adam and Eve and this notion of being naked and unashamed. And after the fall, there's clearly some shame about being naked, that there is something about myself that I have to cover up because mm. there's something attributed to me. And I often give the definition that shame is this attributive sense of wrongness. Like there, there, there is this clear sense of something is wrong. And I feel like that's part of what it means to be made in God's image, that there is some sense where we see where something is wrong. But where shame comes in is that we uh, we tag ourselves to it. We we attribute that wrongness to ourselves to the place where it's really hard to differentiate the something that is wrong and the the person that is wrong. And so uh, Dan Allender talks about what uh, comes out of that then is <clears throat> is contempt. Mm. Uh, and the continuum of contempt is other centered down to self centered contempt. Uh, and those are actually always playing out with each other that to the degree that you have this contempt for others, there's something in there about self-perception contempt that, that we'll, you know, we'll maybe talk about a little later. But I appreciate uh, when mentor said that uh, when, when it comes to, to sin, um, we have to figure out a way to hate our sin without hating ourselves. Mm. And um, so, like you said, I'm, I'm a counselor, so a licensed therapist in the state of North Carolina. And in the counseling world, there's this sense of, you know, unconditional positive regard. And the, the struggle is, is that we, uh, we think there's something wrong and we shouldn't think there's something wrong. It's like there is some sense where there is something wrong in this world and we are a part of that. Yes. Uh, and, and we have to acknowledge uh, that wrongness if we're ever actually going to pursue goodness. Um, but the challenge of that is like, how do we do that without also applying that to ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, and really, really hating what is wrong mm-hmm. without hating ourselves Yeah, uh, because we are still made in the image of God and there is dignity there and we should own that. And that should actually propel us mm-hmm. to differentiate from the things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really, really hard work. And I feel like that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It really is. And, and that's what we're going to try to begin to parse apart, um, in this next little bit. So there's already two things that you've said that I, I just want to make mention of as we dig one is um that we kind of have this notion that shame is something that we're we're supposed to rid ourselves of in order order to become whole but you just mentioned something there that's really powerful like shame is to some degree a piece of living in a broken world and being broken so it is a real problem when a person experiences no shame or no mm-hmm. guilt, right? Mm-hmm. We might mm-hmm. call them antisocial. <laughs> <laughs> like right. to not have a conscience 
is yeah. clearly a problem. So, so there is a portion of shame that helps us resonate with our humanity. Um, so let's say that. And then this other piece of um, how it can be very difficult, uh, especially in some reform circles, to talk about this concept of total depravity mm-hmm. and to teach it in a way without the concept of dignity, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can really throw some people that I have no inherent value mm-hmm. whatsoever. Can you unpack that just yeah. a little bit more? Yeah. I, th- I think that's important. Yeah, I do think both of those need to be there. I mean, the, the term conscience, like like in our world, again, in the counseling world, it's just supposed to be this non-judgmental presence. Like that's the refrain a lot of times. But then we have this notion of mental disorders. Mm. Um, and to call something a disorder, it means that there is some kind of order that's out of whack. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so the big question just arises, you know, what is that order? Uh, how do we understand it? How, how have we uh, drawn a sense of, of purpose from it? How do we actualize it into the world? Um, and for those who are Christian, uh, the Bible is what helps orient what we understand to be order. And, yeah, that plumb line. Um, yeah. And uh, shame is there. Um, and, it's, and it's used somewhat like nuclear energy. <laughs> Uh, that you can use nuclear energy destructively or constructively, that it can power a city or it can demolish a city. Uh, And uh, Jesus used shame in both of those ways. Like, I'd say that he shamed the Pharisees. Um, When you call somebody whitewashed tomb or hypocrite, uh, I'd say he shamed the the money changers. Ooh, word right here, (laughs) word. Uh, In the temple, I'm sure they didn't feel good when he was flipping over their tables like that. Mm. Like he he wanted them to attribute some negative association with how they were living in the world. Uh, He's cracking whips and stuff. So uh, shame is uh, is is used is there, um, but I think. What orients how we understand shame is, is the gospel and where our hope is and where we draw uh, our sense of self. And so there's various places, First Corinthians, it talks about God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Um, Paul said, I, I say this to your shame, First Corinthians 6, 5. Uh, Ephesians 5, 12, it is shameful to even speak of the things that some do in secret. Like There's shame all throughout scripture, but then you also okay. have these passages in like Hebrews 12, 2, where, uh, the writer says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Mm-hmm. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Um, so there is there is a shame that uh, is utilized. Uh, the cross is utilizing shame. Yes. Um, and how the cross is utilizing shame is, is putting it in its proper place. Mm. Uh, that if we... Uh, are really trying to draw our sense of identity, our sense of self, or our sense of um, any of these things from anything other than the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. your conscience should be pricked by that. Yes. You should feel wrong about that if, you're, if, I, if your identity is in anything other than in Christ. And Christ wants you to know that. Mm-hmm. He wants you to feel that. Mm-hmm. Because when we feel that, we respond. Um, <clears throat> but... All that being said, when we talk about total depravity, 
uh, part of the total depravity issue is that we still wrestle with this notion of contempt. And so we give these appraisal on some sins worse than others, and we uh, separate ourselves from others. We hide when we are called into community and be and be seen in the things that we should feel shame about so that we can experience being stirred up towards good works and stirred up towards the affections of the Lord. And so shame makes things really complicated. We, mm-hmm. we don't actually use it as we should, um, but I don't think that the call of the gospel is to not use it, period. Um, and I think that's really hard to figure out what that line is because oh, is. Uh, we... Uh, we are born into this notion. Uh, we, we're born kind of leaning towards uh, this this contempt continuum. Uh, and then you insert the gospel in that. And if it's not a gospel that is clearly from Scripture, it can really just be crushing. It can. Um, it can. And Evan, all that, that you just shared is so powerful and so defining to begin to help us kind of parse out the 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 broken or the the dysfunction piece of shame versus there is a healthy use of shame that Christ himself uses. Um, Now, you've used the word contempt twice here. Give us just a quick working definition of what do you mean when you're using the word contempt? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I think about contempt, um, I think about this... I want to use a word that still needs to be defined, like the sense of condemnation, the sense of um, uh, a a punitive posture, mm-hmm. um, this uh, maybe even re- retributive posture mm-hmm. um, that uh, there's uh, this emotional direction against uh, where you're wanting to dismantle or or even destroy that. Uh, when, so when I'm struggling with self-contempt, um, there's a sense in which I'm, I'm punishing myself mm-hmm. because of what I've done or because of how I understand myself. That when I, when I think about myself in self-contempt, uh, that, that self-thoughtfulness is just full of weaponization. Yes. Uh, that that you, you should feel or you're not and what's wrong with you, you're worthless. Um, all that, but then there is other contempt, right? When you, and that's what I see. I mean, just go to the comment section on social media, and you will see <laughs> other centered contempt Ooh. where you are using this punitive posture and punitive language towards others. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I really feel like you pull back the layers of all of that, and you'll, you'll find shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll, you'll find this this sense of wrongness that is too often over attributed either to other people or to ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, where the gospel is actually wanting to calibrate that in a different way. Yeah, that is so good. Thanks for sharing all of that. Yeah. Very, very defining. Um, a book that came out maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago by Ed Welch called Shame Interrupted, um, I think gave us some some theological perspective on the the four components of shame. Um, And you kind of gave a nod in that direction when you were talking about Adam and Eve and pre-fall, post-fall shame, which was really good. But he defines uh, four components, nakedness and exposure, uh, rejection or not belonging, hiding and feeling dirty, and then the fourth, the brokenness, the unworthiness. And he goes on to state how the gospel 
is the answer to to those four things. And um, I've had a, a good number of clients through the years who have really resonated with the early chapters of that book um, in, in just really feeling like they could resonate with, with the nakedness and the rejection and the hiding. Um, because those of us who uh, struggle with shame, you, you know the fetal position. You know the I can't look you in the eye, the, um, the way that shame can manifest. Um, but when the, when the book moved toward the gospel, it kind of felt disconnected to them in, in the sense that it became very theological and kind of heady, but really struggled to apply that to these four areas in a way that was helpful. Mm. So I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. I, that's a, a big question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you would want to unpack the four components or if you want to talk about what it is that um, makes shame so hard to connect mm. in, in a very practical, relational, yeah. tangible kind of way to the gospel. Yeah, I think part of the the struggle, I mean, you're kind of touching on somewhat of a, a broader separate issue of like the notion of uh, theologizing within counseling. Um, and there's all kinds of you know, tribalism there. Uh, and I think with Ed Welch, uh, there's always this the sense of, of tethering what we seeing in the world and, and tethering it to the gospel and scripture. Uh, that, that scripture really does speak to all of the, the full breath of life. Uh, and the possible consequence of that is that the more you get into concepts about these things, uh, there's, it creates this desire and longing, okay, now how do you place it in mm. my life more specifically? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that, can, that can be challenging uh, in, in that kind of the, theology versus you know practicality, and <clears throat> but what I will say is is that I have I mean in my counseling I have seen all four of these things, um, and even at the top of the list this nakedness and exposure, uh, which I always begin my counseling with affirming the person mm. uh, and acknowledging their courage to come and sit down with me mm. over a complete stranger. Yes, <laughs> about the most sensitive areas of their lives that they probably have not shared with, with anyone or Sometimes very nobody. few people. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, the sacred honor that is, that you are putting words to an experience that you have been terrified to do for the majority of your life, and you're putting words to it now here with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is holy I mean, ground. holy ground. Oh, my yes. gosh. Um, and the, the, the danger could be... and. and in theology of like, how do we quickly take truth to struggle? Um, and that's where you feel like you're sermonizing or preaching. Like preaching is taking truth to struggle, but counseling is taking struggle to truth. And mm. that, that actually takes time. Yes. Uh, it, take, it, it takes time to earn the right to uh, insert truth where mm-hmm. there has been just a proliferation of lies in That's someone's right. life the building of trust uh, gotta build the... that trust mm-hmm. uh, absolutely so this whole notion of naked and exposure like they are exposing themselves um in, in some way and they are risking by doing that mm-hmm. uh, because on some level when we're in our shame we're convinced 
that if you knew this part of me, that means that there would be some kind of rejection. Uh, there would be some kind of messaging of uh, confirmation of my worthlessness. Right. And there, there really is a, a pain uh, to that. And you know, we talk about you know, physical pain and all that. But on a neurological level, like the, the pain of rejection is oh, yeah. just as deep as you smacking someone in the face. Mm-hmm. Like it, it really does feel that real. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and nobody willingly walks up to someone and say, hey, can you punch me in the nose? Like, I really think that that's good for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we resist that. We protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. We are guarded if mm-hmm. we think someone is dangerous in that way. And if we do that physically, we also do that emotionally. If, if we think that there is an area in our lives that is not safe and we are around people that we are not convinced are safe, we just instinctively are guarded. Mm-hmm. And there's always some element of guardedness in all of us because we all, sure. I think, wrestle with shame. And so I, I think where I would, um, if, if you know, to your question of uh, the disconnect of the theology and applying it, um, I, I really feel like where the bridge is, um, is uh, sitting long and sitting well with someone's story. Mm-hmm. and uh, allowing it to to get so deep to a place where if you inserted any truth that it's not really a hard fit mm-hmm. like you're, you're just you're seeing kind of like a puzzle piece like you're seeing right where all the crevices are and you're seeing this puzzle piece on the table and you're seeing this place where there needs to be some truth inserted and it's like it's obvious this piece needs to go here uh, as opposed to like seeing all these holes, like, well, let me just slap something here and push it in there. It's got to fit. Um, that, that, that can just feel very jarring at best or mm-hmm. um, harmful uh, at worst. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, so I, I, hope, I hope it's not sounding like I'm, you know, taking shots at Ed Welsh or, you know. Oh, uh, no, that, we that, have that the discipline. highest esteem for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I, I really do have the highest esteem. Um, but, uh, and I, I'm sure he would, if someone came to him with that critique, he would uh, you know, like explain all of that. There's only so much you can do in a book. Oh, yeah. Um, but I feel like that's where there could be some, uh, yeah. some disconnect. So when I hear you say that, it sounds like you're saying that shame is, I don't know if this is the right word, but best suited to be applied and worked on in the context of safety in the context of trust, in the context of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that we can't be sitting Sunday morning in a sermon and the Holy Spirit do something, yeah, right? Like, right, I mean, he right. certainly does that. Um, but because shame is in part a rejection and exposure kind of nuanced thing, exposure and rejection is something that can be treated if you will mm-hmm. in in the relationship context right mm-hmm. yeah absolutely mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> i think of uh mentor randy neighbors that says like good preaching is preventative counseling mm. uh, that uh, if you if you preach faithfully about you know the biblical vision of marriage uh that 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 should create a sense of intervention about okay this is what it means to pursue a God-honoring, uh, dignifying marriage. And so there, there is a sense where uh, things sh- should be addressed and can be addressed. And uh, again, trust and safety, that can happen in a sermon, that can happen in a, in a worship service in a small way. 
but certainly not to the extent of actual relationship uh, and the time that it takes to build that level of trust uh, where people cannot uh, explain away truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I often see when people really entrenched in shame that there's this sense of exceptionalism about their brokenness oh, yes. uh, that everyone else can experience true redemption everyone else can experience true recovery everyone else can experience true love but not me because mm, uh, I'm, I'm more broken there's something about me that is more broken yeah. and you put words to that and you know a rational person would, would say that that's not true but that, that's, the, that's the visceral uh, experience that people have in shame, that there's something exceptional about yes. my brokenness. And so they will sit in a service and they'll hear a sermon and they will nod in agreement that it is true, but there will be something lacking in terms of true heart penetration mm-hmm. because they feel exceptionally broken. Yeah. And it's relationship that actually disciples people out of that that sense of exceptionalism so true love every bit of that (laughs) that's good stuff right there Uh, especially for the heart of a counselor (laughs) (laughs) now i'd love to hear from your counseling and pastoring experience where what are the contexts that you see shame playing itself out because we maybe we all have these kind of preconceived notions of what shame looks like but what are what are some of the instances or pictures of what you see shame looking like as it comes into your office yeah so i mean because i'm a a male counselor uh, usually males feel more comfortable coming to counseling with me and uh Men struggle with shame in the sense of uh, feeling emotionally vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think, uh, yeah, we live in a culture where there's all kinds of thoughts and notions about masculinity, but what seems to still be prevailing is the sense that if you are a man's man, uh, that somehow means that you do not have a range of emotions. Yeah. Um, and so as a man, it's okay to experience anger and and happiness uh, but fear and and sadness um, those are those are things that that you should be manning it you need to man up uh, and of course we're we're human and we have the full range of emotions that that are that are human and, and part of it is because we're made in the image of god the lord has a quite a range of emotions and mm-hmm. we see that in scripture yes um and so a lot of times there's there are things that are prevailing in lives and it is uh, there's just an emotional complexity there and I, I, I deal a lot with um, and struggling with addictive behaviors um, and so they, they come in and of course there's always some sense of confusion about their addiction because in their right mind they know I should not continue in this behavior mm-hmm. because it has all these negative consequences and negative impact on me mm-hmm. uh, and yet it persists uh, in the moments when they feel lonely or the moments when they feel rejected or the moments when they feel angry you know all these things um, and, they're, and they're trying to understand it and they feel ashamed of themselves because they, they can't uh, and I think that extends out generally with, with my clients that there's some experience that they're having and in their quote-unquote right mind, they, they know uh, the right thing to do, the right thing to say, especially if they're Christian. But then there's this experiential, this reality uh, that's like, am I, am I a believer? Like, what is going on that I keep um, 
I stay in this cycle and this ritual. And so I, I just see that a, a lot and uh, resonate with that deeply. And uh, a lot of my initial sessions with them is giving them space to, to lay out the the confusing mess that they're feeling um, mm-hmm. because they, they have been ashamed to even talk about uh, the ambivalence, uh, the, the, the strong desire for healthy living contrasted with these destructive decisions that seem to plague their lives consistently. Just mm-hmm. laying that out before assigning any moral categories to it, but before uh, saying whatever is wrong with how you're understanding it. Well, I'm just, let's just take a moment to validate that mm-hmm. that's what your experience is mm-hmm. before we even hint at any kind of intervention or prevention. Mm-hmm. And it's astounding to me how few people actually get that kind of space. Mm. Uh, that there, it almost is, is this an, a, a huge intoxication of like, if you, if there is something wrong that's laid out on the table, we instinctively want to move towards it to fix it yeah. with the best of intentions. But what I have found in a, in a counseling relationship is, uh, it, it is such a balm uh, and it's such a refreshing experience for my clients and folks that I, that I pastor, if they just get to say it, mm-hmm. uh, but before there's any kind of corrective, is it okay for me to just say it? And for it to just take up space in the room mm-hmm. um, to the degree that we allow people to just take up space with their heart complexities. I mm-hmm. feel like that is the extent that shame mm-hmm. really the volume of it really is turned down mm-hmm. uh, in those moments. That is so beautiful. And, and and as you're saying all of that and creating this space for, for safety for others to, to be validated, to be heard. Mm-hmm. I'm also thinking, what is it that is so driving in in the person on the other side of the room that that we do feel like we need to fix it and and just kind of those quick answers and uh, getting getting down to to the bottom line and and maybe some of that being driven by mm. by shame as well or mm. um, kind of the God complex that I'm the benefactor and I have the answers and yeah. some control issues, you yeah. know, that need to kind of rush in and, and pretend that we could fix these things rather than that being the spirit's work. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, it, it's a tension, right? Cause I, I do feel like, especially for Christians, uh, there's this, this gospel call to, if lies are present, then we should give truth. And, um, that, it does. It is actually harmful to persist in, in lies. And so with sincerity and care, I want to I want to speak truth in love, Lord willing. And the best case scenario, that is actually the case. But what I also see in scripture is that Jesus was the master question asker, mm-hmm. uh, that he did not always lead with uh, some sermonizing. He, he did not always lead with, um, you know, crushing some some lie that someone was living in uh, the woman at the well right yes. like he he led uh with an invitation and mm-hmm. he led with with questions mm-hmm. uh, like there was just a a thoughtful patience and it was intentional it was he was leading somewhere yeah. um and I, I think 
you know, for us, we got to be careful with that. Like these questions where like, I want you to arrive at this exact place because uh, people don't like feeling like that either because that can feel manipulative. Um, but there, there was a, a posture of, um, uh, let, let's take up some space here with what's going on in your heart uh, mm-hmm. b- before I um, do something. You know, with the woman with the issue of blood, he said, who touched me? Um, he knew who touched him. Yes. He knew, but he, he was trying to invite this woman out of her. She was hiding. He was bringing her forth. Yes, yeah. he was bringing her forth. He, he said this publicly because he that's that's the extent that he wanted to actually address the deeper issue. He didn't want just to address her body. He wanted to also address her self-perception mm. because she was hiding, got healed, and went back to hiding. Yeah. It's like, why are you still hiding mm-hmm. if you are if you are healed, if this thing that has pushed you into hiding, um, but the, the healing is, is one thing, but the healing of the heart and the mind and the experience yes. of being shamed is a whole other thing. And Jesus Ooh, wanted to call that That's going to preach right there. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that will preach. Oh, I love that. And just, oh, the dignity that, yeah. that he gives. Um, yes. It's so beautiful. Ooh, brings yeah. me to tears here. The, the only time when he does a miracle is his daughter. Your faith has made you well. Mm. Like he speaks over her, mm-hmm. a, an identifying statement. Mm-hmm. That's just so beautiful. Blessing and yeah, the depth and richness of that. Now you've kind of given um, a mention towards secrets, um, mm. but we we certainly know that secrets is is this residual place where shame can reside and I often talk about it in the counseling room like um, as a trauma specialist I deal a lot with abuse stories and I kind of give this metaphor of um, shame sometimes resides under rocks like we're in this process of just turning over rocks and seeing what worms are underneath there you know and and um, kind of gently poking around people's stories. Um, Sometimes I ask folks to actually say hard words because just in the naming of a word can be so much shame. Um, And you've you've talked about the the addiction, um, but let's talk a little bit more about secrets. I mean, there's the old euphemism out there, you know, you're as sick as your secrets. Um, what, What do you think that is? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, with with the notion of trauma, so I, I'm also um, a trauma professional and, and trained in trauma-informed counseling and feel like that's going to, feel like if you're a counselor, you need to have some specialized training with trauma oh, yes. because it's so um, rampant and, and just normative uh, and to our understanding. Anyway, um, and so it, with, it is fascinating to see the, the shame that, people that experience in particular abuse right because not all trauma is abuse but uh abuse is traumatic and to see where people are coming in just the um resistance to name uh something that's just accurately abused especially when um a lot of my clients are men and they've been abused Mm. um because when when you are abused there is this uh this, this heap of shame on you and in all kinds of ways you know some like now, how could I let this happen to me? Or what, what does this say about me that this happened to me? Um, and there's all kinds of appraisals and interpretations. And, and uh, the trauma, uh, it, it sits with you the more you are isolated with that. 
because trauma like abuse i don't talk about abuse specifically because trauma is a, seems like a wider uh net but um abuse it is it is a type of alienation it mm-hmm. is a type of betrayal mm-hmm. uh, the majority of people that are abused they're abused by someone that they know mm-hmm. so it's most of the time not a stranger and so there is a complexity to the relationship that you are supposed yeah. to be someone that i trust and you have done this thing where if if you were a trustworthy person, you would not have done it. How do I reconcile those two realities? Yes. Um, either I'm stupid for for trusting you, uh, or uh, I am. There, there's something about me that invited that, mm-hmm. um, and in this this heaping of like self blaming, and uh, what what I see is that just the re- the re- the relationship side, like shame has a relational component to it. Uh, that we yep. feel the most ashamed when we are seen by others. Yes. Um, so when we have these secrets, uh, we, we keep these secrets because we don't want people to see us in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the, just the, the energy of having eyes on you in this very raw, vulnerable, painful thing in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <clears throat> again, this whole self-protection that, that happens and so we keep a lot of secrets mm-hmm. uh, because we are not sure uh, that someone can bear the weight mm-hmm. of those secrets mm-hmm. um, and, and in one sense there's some truth to that like the only person that can bear the full weight of all of us is Christ yeah. uh, and yet we are created as relational beings um, that that isolation is counter to how we are designed and even mm-hmm. the world will acknowledge that mm-hmm. right when, when you are in jail and you do something wrong in jail they put you in isolation mm. like the punishment is isolation when you do something in society and you do something wrong you commit a crime they isolate you from society put you jail. um time out right so there's all these <laughs> things uh, of isolation that are that feel punitive because we know on some level, even if we don't articulate it, we are designed to be with others and be seen with others. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be very confusing because instinctively we want to separate when we feel this pain or this sense of shame and vulnerability. Um, and that's where counseling is really important. Being in safe community is really important because it, it draws you back in. Mm-hmm. Um, it draws you back in in such a way that you can acknowledge, I don't actually have the strength within myself to move forward well. Uh, in myself, I feel this instinct uh, pull away, um, and, and Christ hide. invites us. Mm-hmm. Uh, our community invites us. At least mm-hmm. we sh- we should feel this 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 pull in, uh, because at our best selves, we make the conscious and healthy decision to be in community and to be seen and to not isolate. But we're not always in our best selves. Mm-hmm. There are moments when uh, the brokenness of this world gets to us. Our sin arises. Mm-hmm. Temptation. Uh, feels heavy mm-hmm. uh, and those proclivities prone to wander <laughs> lord, lord i feel I prone feel to leave the god i love yes um and so yes the lord intervenes in that uh, but he also uses his people mm-hmm. uh, he uses his church uh to uh experience this knownness this seenness um and so mm-hmm. Yes, secrets are, are natural, and I imagine even someone listening to this, they might feel ashamed uh, that they have this secret that they have never talked about and feel like there's something wrong with them because of that, um, but just want to affirm that that is natural. Uh, we, we, we do all have that. We're all wrestling with 
how can I feel safe enough to invite someone into this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we are doing that kind of calibration on our own, we will always come on the other side saying there is there is more reason to hide than to be exposed um, because of this con- contempt continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to we need to find oh, just a relationship that is worth risking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is worth risking to say I I'm going to choose to believe that if I reveal myself to you that you will not reject me. Mm-hmm. That's a huge risk mm-hmm. uh, for someone that deals deeply with shame. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like that's the gospel call. It is. Uh, I do feel like I think that's that was the gospel call with Jesus. Like mm-hmm. Jesus invited people to risk being seen mm-hmm. by him. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he ever uh, minimized that risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was so patient and gentle because he knew how risky it was mm-hmm. for a sinner to uh, allow themselves to be exposed in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, so Christ have mercy that we are uh, ambassadors to that end. Mm-hmm. And and this is taking me on a little bit of a different thought, just kind of sociologically among the generations, because I'm seeing this new generation coming up where, you know, they... Now, I'm making a broad generalization. Let me preface it by that. But there are um, places where uh, folks go on public sites and they all cite their story and they all confirm and, and, and validate. It's a safe place, if you will, to, mm-hmm. to publicly tell your abuse story or mm-hmm. um, uh, maybe even with, you know, racial tension. There's, mm-hmm. there's these sites where you go and you, sh- you share your, your racial abuse or things like that. Um, and then, you know, you have the older generation where, that kind of stuff is very foreign. It feels almost foolish, but are a little more um, truth-seeking or, or factual. Um, it, it's a, a more principled morality kind of approach. And you just see this vacillation between the generations, if you will. Yeah. Um, when in reality, it's, it's one of those things where, where both are actually needed, right? You have to hold those two things that seem so polar in tension yeah. together. Yeah. Can you unpack that just a minute for us? <laughs> just a minute. Oh, just gosh. a minute. Evan. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, what, what, what came to mind is I heard you talking about that because I, I see that as well. Uh, these different almost extremes of like what is authenticity. And yes. the, word, the word discretion comes to mind. Um, I say that for a younger generation, it's like discretion feels like repression. Mm. Um, and yeah. uh, for for older generations, discretion just just feels like uh, just good sense uh, and and a good sense of like uh, you 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 gotta you gotta be able to be thoughtful and strategic, but inadvertently uh, trying to be strategic, you actually end up not having very many relationships where there's actual vulnerability um, oh right so. there <laughs> you just don't see that much vulnerability yeah. in in the older generation it, yeah. it's true and it, and they can and younger generations see older generation and it just feels like such a different world because it seems like there's such a simplicity mm-hmm. to the struggle a seeming simplicity mm-hmm. to the struggle older mm-hmm. people just did not struggle in the ways of complexity as younger generations um, and certainly it can present that way because of these 
differing views on discretion and what that means, what what that should mean. Um, and, I, you know, social media has created a fever pitch around uh, how do we um, gain acceptance and approval. Um, and, and I do think that social media is used too often as a therapeutic outlet. Mm. And uh, it... It is therapeutic, but it's not therapy. Right. <laughs> um, I do think there is something cathartic about sharing your story. And mm-hmm. then the comment section is filled with uh, people that are affirming or saying me too or all these kinds of things. Uh, but what I have also seen is that uh, when people have put themselves out there to that degree, if they get 100 positive comments and then one comment yeah. that says, you're an idiot for doing this, what's wrong with you, and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm that it will crush yes. people. Mm-hmm. That one comment just, it will send them spiraling. Mm-hmm. Um, or someone puts a post out there and they are anxious all day because they have not gotten as many likes to their post as they feel like they should have. Like, I, like am I being weird? Am I, should I delete it? Should I take it down? And just seeing, I mean, people have come into my office with these kinds of things. And so there's, there's a shadow side uh, to this, therapeutic tool of social media uh, where I do feel like people are experiencing some level of acceptance and especially with some of these other uh, struggles that people are having but um, I don't think there's enough understanding of the negative consequences of mm-hmm. trying to gain acceptance in that way mm-hmm. you, you, you're not actually getting the depth of connection you, you might get the breath of connection you might get connection that is far reaching um, but the, the depth of it and the rootedness of connection, mm-hmm. social media or blogs or kind of this internet age, it just, it, it will not provide that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not even moralizing. Like the statistics bear that out. Research bears that out. Like, right. we, like we cannot rely on the internet to be our place of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, but we still try to <laughs> with the heart of hearts. And when we see that it's not working, we'll just invent a whole new social media platform. And maybe that will get it to us, but it just, it won't. At some point we have to acknowledge it. It won't do that. And we have to, we have to pivot, but the younger generation does not want to pivot to what the older generation has done. Because mm-hmm. in um, some ways reacting from it. it. There's some, re- there's some reactionary um, things to that. So there's this, weird sense of confusion that's like I don't want to be what the older generation has done um and this feels very distinct from the older generation but it's not actually accomplishing what I set out to do mm-hmm. uh so what then <laughs> uh and I actually think that's a good place for some gospel ministry Ooh. I really feel that's a good place I really feel like like where we're headed in terms of apologetics I feel like mental health is like the it's gonna be a prominent vein. Of it's an intersection, don't you think? Yeah, of all this, I agree with yeah, you. I mean, we're in a we're in a prime cultural moment for for mental health to be really a conduit toward toward the gospel. Oh yeah, and that identity and what it means for human flourishing, like mm-hmm. those are such good questions mm-hmm. to ask, mm-hmm. and this younger generation is asking it so clearly so yeah. tangibly yeah. what is my identity what can i cling to and trust that it'll provide for me this sense of identity that i'm longing for mm-hmm. uh, that is such a good question and you are not mm-hmm. unique in asking that question mm-hmm. um, but what you're clinging to is not actually going to give you what you think it will um, and i feel like we are getting to the place where 
it's it's becoming more obvious. Not yet, uh, but Lord willing, it becomes obvious. Like this actually isn't giving it to me. Mm-hmm. Social media is not giving it to me. The the, the sexual ideology stuff isn't getting to me. These these platformings is getting mm-hmm. like it's not my job, my money. Like like twenty twenty showed that we really can't rely on a whole lot. <laughs> like oh, my yeah. physical health is not really giving it to mm-hmm. me. And so what what can I really rely on mm-hmm. to prop me up? That is such a good question. And Jesus answers that far better than anyone or anything else. Mm -hmm. Another preaching moment, Evan Marbury. (laughs) That's so rich. So rich. Um, I, I want to chat just a a little moment here as, as we're kind of moving toward wrapping up and, um, is it is it Brene Brown that just had a recent release on the gift of imperfection? Mm-hmm. I believe, um, yeah. and of course she's a an incredible shame researcher, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, and our dear friend Kelly Capick is just coming yeah. out with a book called uh, Shout Out Kelly Capick. Woo, Kelly! <laughs> um, let's see that you're only human. I yeah. believe is the name of it because. Um, there can be a, a culture um, within Christian circles where um, the, the intersection of middle class, success, mm-hmm. um, being driven, being ambitious, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanting to do things right mm-hmm. can all kind of intersect with a cultural norm of pretty darn high pressure mm-hmm. um and it kind of takes on its own christianized mm-hmm. thing you know and um so let's talk a little bit about the shame involved in imperfection i just mm-hmm. i can't quite get it mm-hmm. right um it kind of has that perfectionistic undertone um yeah. But I think there's a lot of folks in our circles who really wrestle with it. I would say yeah. you and I wrestle oh, with yeah. this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 oh yeah. Um, so I I resonate with it with it deeply, especially in the context of parenting. I mean, that's been the place where it's been most difficult. Like, dang it, I just can't get this right. Yeah. And and it's not only the pain of imperfection, it's the impact of the development yeah. of my kids, yeah. which bears another layer of, of pain. But whatever context yeah. you're in, I think we wrestle with that. Can, yeah. can you speak to some of that for a yeah. moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's so, wow, that's so uh, powerful. And I can't wait to read uh, Dr. Catholic's book. Oh, yeah. Uh, shout out to Kelly. I, 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 f- I do think... Um, without the gospel, it is a crushing weight to be confronted by our imperfection. Mm -hmm. It is a crushing weight. Um, because I I think we can see the negative impact that we can have on the world. We, the negative impact to ourselves, if we're being honest, Mm -hmm. uh, that it it can be easy to talk about imperfection as though, like just living your authentic self Mm -hmm. and yada, 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 um, but part of the natural consequence of imperfection is that there's some moral imperfection. Um, there's some physical imperfection and, and we, um, we, we want to glean a sense of um, 
acceptance and approval by what we can achieve, by how we can present mm-hmm. ourselves in healthy ways and all, you know, all these things. And so when we fall short, like that is really hard. Uh, we, we want to believe that we can embody our ideals. Yeah. And when we are confronted with the absolutely true fact that we cannot embody our ideals, mm-hmm. um, the big question is, well, how then do I live? If I, if I know that I can't really embody my ideals. And I think, again, the scriptures are, are very helpful and the gospel is very helpful in that way. And I, I mean, you know, let's talking about shame. Like, I, I wish I could talk about shame for myself in these like triumphalistic terms and it's like a kind of <laughs> testimonial about how I've overcome shame. But the reality is the longer I live and the, and the more I learn uh, about learn the gospel, the more I see how far shame has and is reaching in my life yes. um it is it's is just it's so it's yeah it's just everywhere mm-hmm. and i feel it constantly mm-hmm. and even when um having some perception of success uh, a lot of times my shame has fueled that and mm. um and then being confronted by that it's hard not to then spiral into shame of like this is why i'm doing this i thought this was you know all these kinds of things um and so i'm 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 speaking to myself as often as much as I'm speaking to anyone on this podcast. Um, but I, what I love about the gospel is that if I really believe the gospel, uh, where, where Jesus, where Romans ten says, all those who believe will not be put to shame. Mm-hmm. Like if I really believe that, that, that means then that not only can I be honest about the imperfections that I feel intuitively, that I can actually be even more honest about my imperfections. Mm-hmm. That as Paul says, I can boast in my weakness mm. uh, we, we have in our culture this in this cultural moment the sense of boasting in our weakness um, but it, it's kind of like trying to flip it on its head like I'm boasting my weakness in a way but I'm still trying to gain approval and acceptance mm-hmm. in the sense of identity mm-hmm. um, I'm just doing it in this kind of boastful uh, and weakness way but it, it's still self um, self gratifying um, but when Paul posts about his weak, boasts about his weakness He's doing that because he really wants to showcase Christ and he really wants to showcase uh, where, where everything else is sinking sand. I know that I can stand on Christ Oh my! Uh, and all there these other is. things, <laughs> <laughs> all these other things. Like if, if, if I don't boast and how all these other things are lesser, I might make the mistake of trying to stand on them. Yes. And so I, I, I boast in. The, the deficiency of all these things so that I can really showcase the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Mm. And and yes, gift of imperfection, I've been, you know, completely, i just blessed by Brene Brown's stuff mm-hmm. uh, and would recommend her materials in a lot of ways. Uh, but I would recommend it as, it's not something that's wrong, but something that's like a comma. Uh, like like she, she, doesn't, she doesn't complete the thought in how we're supposed to utilize mm. our vulnerability. That it's, that it's not some, uh, you know, turn it on its head kind of way of, uh, mm-hmm. again, this, this positive self-regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is, a, it, the invitation at the end of vulnerability is that I actually lay down my life wow. uh, and that I decrease and that yeah. Christ increases within me, that I no longer live, but it is Christ in me. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's where you complete the thought. Anything mm-hmm. less than that, mm-hmm. you will inevitably still be grasping onto these notions of, 
um, idyllic living and you will fall short and there'll be some other kind of uh, shame dynamic that will take its place Uh, it it will be a never-ending battle um, with shame if you don't at some point let go of self and cling to Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that has to be inserted at some point in the conversation. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel that so heavily. I feel that every time I try to use some kind of uh, the, these tools that are good, like groundedness, right. and mindfulness, right. like all those things are good. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with them. They're just, they're a comma right. to a much longer sentence. And, mm-hmm. and we have to complete the thought of what all that, what's really the benefit of all of that. We don't want just symptom reduction. We actually want transformation mm-hmm. of our hearts mm-hmm. to find our identity in someone who is, is much greater than anything we can find in this mm-hmm. world. Uh, and I forget that as often as I remember it. Oh, yeah, it's so true. Which is why I love the the adage that really even the believer needs to be preaching the gospel to themselves yes. Yes. every single day. Yes. You and I, as steeped in it all as we are, need the gospel. Repenting, humbling ourselves, seeing our sin, yeah. coming back to the centrality of it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's good to just maybe just give keep continuing to give thought about uh, what repentance is. Like that word often has a lot of baggage. Mm. Uh, like re- repentance can just feel like uh, what's the term? Flagellation. Like it just really beat myself uh, up. Yeah, it's kind mm-hmm. of self deprecating language. And I, I I resonate with that on some level. Like we should hate our sin without hating ourselves. Right. That's that's the gospel. But at the same time, like repentance is also a a ceasing from striving, like what the song says in Christ alone. That mm-hmm. that when we repent, we are we are resting in what Christ has done for us. That's right. That, that we are uh, moving away from trying to strive for our, our perfections in this life, and we are resting in what Christ has done for us. Mm-hmm. That it actually there's there is an affection and a warmth there mm-hmm. in the call to repentance. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is not just this heavy-handed, mm-hmm. what is wrong with you, uh, your, your glory is, is in your shame kind of thing, uh, which there's room for that. There's, again, Jesus had some very, some, some hard words a lot of times. But then also there's a gentleness, and that's not stepping outside of the realm of repentance, uh, but it is like uh, the old adage of, Christ comes to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm-hmm. And all of that is repentance. It and, is. and comforting the afflicted is a re- repentance. You, you are turning away from this, this tidal wave of self-hatred, this tidal wave of messages of worthlessness, and tidal wave of, of a punitive posture towards yourself. And you're turning to a God that looks at you and sees you and there is nothing but delight in his eyes when he mm-hmm. looks at you mm-hmm. and an excitement mm-hmm. when you are, are, are choosing to rest in what he says about you as opposed to this messaging yeah. uh, of shame that has yeah. been with you for the majority of your life. That is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. Um, and just to see the smile of God, you know, um, through the, the righteousness of Christ, that yeah. that is ours yeah. daily, his favor, no matter what we did yesterday or this morning, you know, it's, yeah. it is a beautiful thing, but one that's hard to grasp and, mm-hmm. and stay mm-hmm. um, so tethered to. And um, so I really appreciate us ending on this note, because again, it is the it is the the only lifeblood mm-hmm. for shame. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that we that we actually truly have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Evan, you never disappoint. You just keep putting it out there in good, <laughs> good, rich terms. And I just have loved this time with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Any parting words that you want to share with our listener? Uh, just thank you for uh, having this conversation with me and allowing me to be a part of this podcast. And uh, the work of shame is hard work and, mm. and deep work. And, uh, and Christ is our refuge. And uh, I need to be reminded of that constantly. Mm-hmm.